Hello everyone, uh, thank you for inviting us into your space today. We've got a lot of different ways for you to connect at Christ Community, so head on over to our website, check out the coming up page, and see all the different ways you can get connected right now. Also, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe whether you're on YouTube or listening on a podcast, um, just so you can see whenever new content's available. Enjoy the message. Hello, Christ community. So glad you are here and welcome to all those who are watching online, traditions you're watching, and for those who are listening on the podcast all around the world, welcome. We're glad that all of you are a part of this. We're in the midst of a teaching series where we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. When you're walking verse by verse through a book like this, you don't have the option to skip over difficult or controversial passages. So today we find ourselves in what many scholars refer to as the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament to understand and apply, which is sort of hard to believe considering all the other difficult passages that we've been walking through in this book. But here we go. We're going to dive in and we're going to try our best to figure out what Paul was saying, um, and then how that applies to us. I mean, that's Bible interpretation 101. You always focus on what the author was originally saying to their audience. And then once you understand that, then you try to apply those principles to our current context. Now, what makes this particular passage especially challenging to interpret accurately is that it is dealing with a topic that many Christians have very strong feelings about, namely the role of men and women in ministry and in relationship to one another. And there is a tendency in the body of Christ to project onto this passage things that we have already concluded from other passages, and we don't really let this passage speak for itself. This is sort of my journey as it relates to this particular passage. I had never really studied this passage for myself. I had simply heard over the years people's summary of the passage And so I thought I knew what it was saying. I was listening to what they thought it said, and so I thought I understood. Then, because of this teaching series, I ended up diving into this passage with kind of fresh eyes and just studying it. In that process, I realized this passage is not actually talking about what I had been told it was talking about. And that was a big aha moment for me. So I can't wait to dive in because of the things we're going to discover here. And the the main thing we're going to discover is the incredible worth and value of both men and women in the kingdom of God. So let me read the entire passage first so that we get a feel for the topic Paul's discussing. But before I do that, let me put this section in context. Chapters 1 to 4, where, where Paul was primarily dealing with, dealing with relational conflict. <clears throat> Chapters 5 to 7, Paul was focused on sexual immorality <clears throat> and marriage and singleness. Chapters 8 through 10, we're focused on how we can influence our culture rather than being influenced by our culture. So now here we are in chapters 11 to 14, another section where Paul addresses some of the Corinthians questions regarding worship service protocol, specifically as it relates to things like the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 verses 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so now do you see why this passage is a uniquely difficult one to interpret? There are a lot of cultural things going on here. And there are some words here that are hard to define, harder to define. Um, and, and then we have the whole men and women issue. Now, after hearing that, you might be thinking, this has no relevance uh, to, this has no relevance today. But, but it actually has huge relevance, especially in light of all the conversations surrounding maleness and femaleness and gender today. So let's dive in. There are basically three main principles that Paul is articulating in this passage. And so I want to explore these principles and then I want to try to apply them to our context today. Okay, so first principle Paul articulates is this. Both men and women are allowed and encouraged to lead in a public worship service. Now, this may sound like a no-brainer um, to some, but in lots of churches today, there are significant restrictions that are placed on what women can and can't do in a worship service. And so I really want to highlight this point. In this passage, Paul is clearly declaring that both men and women were able to pray and prophesy in a worship service. Both of these activities, prayer and prophecy, were significant. They were upfront leadership activities in a worship service in that day, which is why Paul is addressing this. The, the, now, the, the, the prayer part of this refers to someone leading the church in prayer at a service. So what's this prophecy thing? What is prophecy? Now, for many Christians today, when they hear the word prophecy, um, they immediately think about the book of Revelation and predicting the future and the second coming and all that stuff. That's not what Paul is talking about here. When the word prophecy is used in the book of Acts, as well as in Paul's letters, it is referring to a specific experience, which Paul goes into great detail in chapter 14, which we'll get to eventually as we're walking through this book. But let me summarize how Paul defined prophecy. Prophecy is the sharing with another person or group of people something that God has spontaneously brought to your mind. So when prophecy is operating, a person is listening to the Holy Spirit on behalf of someone else, and then they share with the person what they're hearing. Now, this can happen with an individual person, which is why in our services, we like most of our services, we like to create space after the sermon for people. If they want to, they can come up 
And they can have someone pray alongside them. And our prayer team members are all trained in how to listen to God on behalf of this person. And then to humbly share if anything comes to their mind. This is not a, thus says the Lord, or God told me sort of thing. No, 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 we don't use language like that. This is a, hey, as I was praying for you, there was a word, or there was a scripture, or there was a picture that came to mind. And so here's, here's what I saw, and here's what I think that might mean. But I encourage you to test and weigh that to see if it's from God. That's prophecy functioning. In, in, in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, as well as 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about how we are always to test a prophetic word. Prophecy is not on the authoritative level as scripture. It's not. It's here. Scripture's here. Prophecy is always to be tested and weighed by scripture. Okay, so that's one way prophecy can happen in a church service. It's one individual praying for another person and that they hear something that they think is from God and they share that with this person. That's one way. The other way prophecy can happen in a worship service is when someone receives a prophetic word, they kind of sense God saying something, but it's for the entire congregation. <clears throat> and so they share that with the entire congregation. This seems to be what is happening here, what Paul is describing here. And he makes it clear that both men Men and women are encouraged to do that in a public worship service. Now, I want to point out that this is not a minor theme in Scripture. Like, oh, Paul's just bringing something up out of the blue that's not really, a, it's kind of a minor theme. No, no, no. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when God poured out his spirit upon his people and this new age of the spirit was inaugurated... Peter stood up to explain what was happening. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. Peter is explaining what was happening. And he, when he does so, he quotes from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And this is what Peter says, quoting from Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. At this moment, when the church is born and God's spirit is poured out in a unique way, that was not the case in the Old Testament. Now people are experiencing the spirit in a new way. God makes it really clear really clear. He wants his church to be characterized by men and women prophesying, speaking God's word to his people, God's words to his people. So here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is just reasserting what Peter had declared on the day of Pentecost in terms of what the church is supposed to look like. Men and women both hearing from God and declaring that to the church and then whatever they declare is tested and weighed to see if it aligns with scripture. Nowhere in this passage is Paul limiting the ministry women can have in terms of praying or prophesying in a worship service. Nowhere is he limiting them. What Paul was concerned about was the way that men and women were doing this in the service, which leads to the second crucial principle in this passage. Nothing should be done in a worship service that brings dishonor to God or to others. 
Now, this was the big aha moment for me in studying this passage. I had been taught over the years and told over the years that this passage is about authority. The primary point of this passage is about authority. It's about men having authority over women in a worship service context. But when I studied the passage for myself, I realized it's actually not about authority. In fact, the word authority is only used one time in this entire passage. And look at the verse it's used in. Verse 10, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. The only time the word authority is used in this passage is referring to a woman's authority over her own head. So what is this passage talking about? And what does it focus on if it's not about authority? Well, I think Paul makes this really, really clear. Multiple times throughout this passage, Paul uses these words honor or dishonor. That's what this passage is about. And this is where we have to wade into that culture to better understand what was happening. The culture of that day was an honor-shame culture. And many cultures today, especially in the Middle East and in the Far East, are also honor-shame cultures. Ours is not an honor-shame culture. It's really important that we understand the difference. In an honor-shame culture, there, there is this huge value placed on not doing anything that would bring dishonor upon someone else, either your community or especially your family, your parents. Our culture tends to be very individualistic. So in our culture, a typical young adult, when they leave home, they will just make decisions based on what's best for them, what they wanna do, they'll live their lives that way, right? In an honor-shame culture, a young adult may leave the home, when they leave the home, they will still make decisions based on their family, on their parents. Will this bring honor to my family? Will this bring honor to my parents? It is a very different culture. So what was happening in this church at Corinth? There was an honor-shame thing going on as it relates to hair. There were gender-specific ways that men and women could wear their hair. And those particular hairstyles in that culture communicated something that was dishonoring. So Paul starts with the men. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Almost every translation adds the word, adds the word covered, but it is not in the original Greek. What this verse literally says is every man praying or prophesying, having down from head dishonors his head. So what is he talking about? Well, he tells us a little bit later, verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? I don't think Paul is talking about some covering on a man's head. He is talking about having long hair that hangs down. Paul says to do that as a man was dishonoring. There is evidence that in that culture, if a man wore his hair long, it had sexual connotations, that that man was trying to look and behave like a woman and was thus communicating that he is sexually available to men. 
So this explanation helps make the second part of verse four, it just helps make more sense. Paul says that if a man has his hair down, he dishonors his head. What head is he referring to? Paul tells us in verse three, the verse right before, look at this. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. That's the head Paul is referring to in verse four. When a man wore his hair down, he was dishonoring, not this head, he was dishonoring his head, i.e. Christ. How? By not embracing his maleness as created by God. By wearing his hair down in that culture, he was presenting himself sexually as a woman. As one commentator describes, his behavior in in having his hair down looked like a rejection of the purpose assigned to him at creation, which is further described in verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, they added the word cover, uh, i.e. wear his hair down, since he is the image and the glory of God. Paul is acknowledging God's creation distinction between male and female. God created man, so God is man's head. So what about women? Verse five, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now the Greek word used here to describe her hair, it's a very unusual Greek word. Most translations automatically translate this covered but it doesn't have to mean that. It can also mean loose, hanging down rather than being fastened up. I think that's what Paul is saying here. And to me, it makes way more sense of this passage and the rest of the New Testament. This is not, in my opinion, about a specific head covering a woman was to wear. In fact, later in the same passage, Paul says, look at this, verse 15, If a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. Guess what? This is the only time the word covering is actually used in the entire passage. Paul is saying here that a woman's long hair is already a symbolic covering given to her by God. She doesn't need to add to that another cloth covering to put over her head. She doesn't need it. She just needs to fasten her hair up, not let it loose. She needs to fasten her hair up in a worship service because of how this would appear in that culture, which is why Paul says in verse 10, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority. The woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. I'll get to the angel thing in just a moment, but I want us to notice, again, this is the only verse in this entire passage that uses the word authority. And it's talking about a woman's authority. To do what? To wear her hair in a way that doesn't bring dishonor, i.e. by wearing it fastened up rather than hanging down loose. So who are the angels Paul's referring to. Scholars have offered all sorts of possibilities, none of which are airtight. Um, This word can mean angels or it could actually mean messengers as well. Here's what I think. 
We know from chapter 10 and our discussion last week, Paul had a very tangible sense of the spirit world, the unseen, and how our worship in some way engages that world. He was talking about participating in a ritual. You're participating with demons, he said last week, when you're participating in this ritual, religious ritual. So he had a very keen awareness of the connection between our worship and the spirit world. So, so think about that. Do we ever consider that our worship of God is communicating something to the angels and the demons all around us? It's pretty amazing. You know, in, in light of that, I, I want to I mention this month's prayer and worship night. We do it the last Tuesday of every month. This month, it happens to be on Halloween. And we were initially thinking, oh, we need to move it a week earlier. And then, but then we thought, why move it? Why move it? I mean, there are a lot of spiritually dark things going on that night beyond, you know, I'm not talking about trick-or-treat things. I'm, there's a lot of things going on that particular night. I mean, when you read about, you know, Satan and all that stuff, that's a big night for Satanists and all that stuff. What better time to pray and worship than on that day? So we're going to be declaring God's praise in the midst of darkness. So I, I just invite you to consider being, spending part of your Halloween evening worshiping and praying with us. You can take your kids trick-or-treating or whatever, and then come and worship at 7 p.m. Okay, back to the hair thing, because not, we're not done here. Uh, I don't think Paul is talking about women wearing a head covering in a worship service. In fact, later in his letter to Timothy, Remember at the end of this passage, he says, this is true in all the churches. Well, look at what he says in, in 1 Timothy 2.9. Paul urges women to not wear elaborate hairstyles. Why would he be talking about hairstyles if he insisted that women's heads be covered in all church services? I think what Paul is talking about here was a very prominent reality in that culture, that when a woman wore her hair down in public, she just wore it loose down in public, it communicated that she was sexually available, like a prostitute. It was indecent, it was shameful for a woman in that culture to wear her hair down. And this is why it was such a shock when the woman in Luke chapter seven let her hair down to wipe Jesus' feet. It was, you know, it, it shocked everyone because that was not something that was culturally appropriate. Women's hair is fastened up. When you let it down, it means certain things. Only a sexually immoral woman would let down their hair in that culture. So I think, I think what Paul is saying is for a woman praying or prophesying in a worship service, her long hair should be fastened up so as not to communicate a sexually immoral vibe. Because, as Paul says, when she does that, she dishonors her head, which raises the question, what is this referring to? What head is this referring to? Again, as we did with the man side of this, we need to look at verse three, which is the introductory statement Paul makes for this whole passage. Verse three, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. We already talked about that. And the head of the woman is man. This is the verse that has caused a lot of confusion and I think harm in the body of Christ. The reason is because we read the word head in our culture and we automatically think we define this word as meaning authority over everyone else, the CEO, the one in charge. But that's not the only meaning in this word in Greek. You can look at it. It's not the only way this word was used in Greek. Even at that, in that time period, it can also, in fact, we're going to see in this passage, it's used differently. It can also mean source. 
It can mean beginning. It all depends on the context. You have to look at the context to determine what Paul is saying. So look at verse eight. Paul shows us exactly how he's using the word head. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Paul is referring to the creation account in Genesis 2, where the man was the source for the woman. He was the source, the head. She was created from man. God created the woman from man. So Paul is saying, if a woman was wearing her hair down in a worship service, she would be dishonoring her head. Again, not her head. (laughs) She would be dishonoring her head the way you define it in verse three. In other words, she would be dishonoring the unique way God created Eve from Adam. There was something about the way she was displaying her femininity by wearing her hair down. There was something about that that dishonored God's creation intent for her. So in this passage, Paul is urging both men and women in the church at Corinth to not lead worship in such a way that would bring public dishonor by how, by how they wore their hair. That's what Paul is focusing on here. That's what this passage is about. So please, let's not try to make this passage say anything about roles in marriage. It's not talking about marriage, nor is it talking about people having control or authority over other people. It's not. That's not the issue Paul is addressing here. This passage is about Paul's heart to not do anything in a worship service that would create an unnecessary barrier to someone in that culture coming to know Jesus. So how might this apply to our context? Are there any things that we do in our church services that create a barrier, an unnecessary barrier to a watching world? For instance, if someone on stage is dressed in a sexually alluring way, that would be dishonoring to themselves and to God. Another example, I was just trying to think of examples. Another example, if I was up here wearing $1,000 shoes and a $500 shirt and a $5,000 Rolex, I think that would be a cultural barrier that would dishonor Christ because our culture doesn't really care about hairstyles. They They hugely value being real, being authentic, being humble rather than showy. So if Paul lived in our culture, I have a feeling he would be pointing out ways we as Christ followers create cultural barriers in our worship service that actually keep people from coming to Jesus. Okay, I want to draw our attention to a third principle Paul communicates in, this, the, the, in verse 11. In the next part of this passage, this is really important. Both men and women are equally valued and important. In verse 11, you'll notice when you look at this later, if you do, there is an intentional shift that happens in Paul's argument. So up to this point, verses 2 to 10, he's been emphasizing how the source or the head of woman is man, and the source or glory of man is God. Okay, but now look at verse 11. Nevertheless, already we can see a shift. In the Lord... 
Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. This is an amazing statement, especially within the culture Paul was writing. You know, people today, at times they read little bits of Paul and they assume of, they accuse him of misogyny. They totally failed to realize how culturally radical Paul's ideas about women were in the culture that he was writing in, a culture that tended to oppress women. Paul is writing these words in the midst of a patriarchal culture where men ruled the home and society, where women didn't have a voice. They really didn't have rights or ownership. They were little more than baby producing slaves. It is into that kind of culture Paul speaks these words. Yes, in verses 2 to 10, he's concerned about not creating barriers to people in the culture and the importance of women honoring men in terms of hairstyle, all that stuff. But he also has no problem now busting barriers that needed to be busted. And in that culture, the gender barrier needed to be busted, which is what Paul's doing here. Look again at his words. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, right? Everything comes from God. See, this is Paul elevating the message of the gospel in such a way that directly confronted, opposed his culture's treatment of women. See, Paul is asserting here that in the eyes of God, men and women are both uniquely created in his image, and they both have infinite worth and value. We need each other. We live in a time period where there is so much, much chaos surrounding gender, and there, there, there's a blurring and a minimizing of gender distinctions, as well as kind of a bashing of other, the other gender, right? Women denigrating men or men denigrating women. And look, in the midst of the, this chaos and this animosity, I want us to let Paul's words sink in because they really are at the heart of the gospel. Both men and women are unique image bearers of God. Both uniquely reflect God's image to the world. We need what women uniquely bring to our community and our church and our families. And we need what men uniquely bring to our community and our church and our family. Now, look, I'm not talking about fostering unhealthy cultural gender stereotypes. You know, women love flowers, all women love flowers, and all men love football. I mean, I'm not talking about that. I'm, but I'm talking about us leaning into the value of our particular gender as male or female, and also honoring the other gender. Both are vital, both are important. This is why God created us male or female, both brilliantly and uniquely displaying his image. We can celebrate our differences and we can acknowledge our need of each other. Which really brings this passage full circle. This passage is not a mandate. It is not a mandate for anyone to exercise control or authority over another person. It is not. This passage, 
is an invitation to worship God in such a way that honors God before a watching world and that equally honors both men and women in their unique contribution as image bearers of God. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's let's stand as we as we pause to respond to the word. So if you're able to stand, please stand. If you're not able to stand, that's totally cool. Holy Spirit is eager to meet all of us. And what I want to invite you to do, we, we like to do this after any message. You know, in a moment, I'm going to pray an ancient prayer, come Holy Spirit. And it's, it's, it's a simple prayer. It's not about us receiving the Spirit again. It's about us presenting our hearts afresh to the Lord and asking him to speak and to move in us. It's something we do so rarely in our culture. We're so busy. We're not going to be busy right now. We're going to experience stillness, quieting our hearts, and just letting the Holy Spirit speak to us about whatever he's putting his finger on and giving us an opportunity just in the quiet of our heart just to say, yeah, Lord, yes. So just close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And sometimes I encourage you to, if you're comfortable, just have your palms open in front of you, just a, another ancient posture of receptivity. So God, we've looked at your word right now and, and now we want to open our hearts to you. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak? Would you move in us? I just, I just really have a sense that some of us here have, there are parts of our maleness or parts of our femaleness that we have sort of despised. Maybe because our culture has kind of communicated a shame about that. Or maybe someone has said something, we've been made fun of or whatever. But I just, have a, I just have a sense that the, the Holy Spirit just kind of wants to call out 
highlight and breathe life into those things that you as a male have maybe despised or you as a female have despised. And there's something the Lord really wants to call out and affirm and embrace and value. And so I want to invite you just in this moment just to ask the Lord this question, who am I as a man of God? Or if you're a woman, who am I as a woman of God? And let the Holy Spirit just speak to you about that. Lord, I just want to pray. I want to pray. I want to just pray this, Lord. God needs you to be who you are. (laughs) As a male or a female, God, God needs you. He created you. Lord, I just want to pray for every man here that they would, they would embrace who they are as a male, as a man because people need them to be that. Their family needs them to be whatever, Lord, a church church needs that. And I pray for women to to lean into, fully lean into their femaleness and where they are needed to be who you've called them to be. I pray protection from false stereotypes, all these ought tos and should, none of that. I'm just praying, Holy Spirit, you would speak. And it's not gonna, you know, I just pray you would speak and identify places that maybe have been dormant and they just, I believe you're calling them to life, Lord. There's like an empowering. I just feel like God is, is wanting to empower men and women to be all that God has called you to be. And so Lord, we just, we open our hearts to that. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Empower us as image bearers of you. Thank you, Lord. So we're going to continue to worship. Worship team's going to lead us. And I want to invite you to continue to open your heart to the Holy Spirit. And whatever he would want to say, whatever he would want to do in you, if at any point during that time you feel like there's something you'd like someone to pray alongside of you, just like I talked about earlier in the message, and just to come alongside and they'll just listen to God. If God lays something on their heart, they'll share it with you. And you can test and weigh that. If you'd like that, just come up front here. We're all going to be worshiping. We're not embarrassing anyone, but it just come up and that'll let our prayer team know they can come alongside you. And, and this is just all, whether you're in your seat or up front, we're, we're opening our hearts afresh to the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts to you. We love you. Thank you, Lord. So wherever you are coming out of this message, we just want you to know that 
you don't have to journey alone. We have a button on our website that we encourage you to click and there's somebody on the other side that would love to chat with you or pray with you. So that is all we have today. Have a great rest of your week.